feel like even if Trump isn't the guy who gets the nomination this time or next time or whatever, um, I feel like we've started accepting a lot of things that could lead us closer to authoritarianism, like political violence and just a lot of this rhetoric that otherwise would have been unthinkable. Hello and welcome to the Aaron Rupar Show. It's hard to believe, but this is already the sixth episode of the podcast. And today I'm really excited to be joined by Thor Benson, who, if you're a regular reader of Public Notice, the newsletter I publish probably needs no introduction because he puts together a lot of the interesting Q&As that I've run uh, over the months and now years in the newsletter. And so we talk about some of the things that he has written for the newsletter today, as well as his personal background with Stormy Daniels and with Elon Musk. And so he has some kind of firsthand insight into a couple of people who have been making a lot of news in recent months and years. We talk about that. We talk about him being a freelance journalist in New Orleans and what life is like in Louisiana and a whole bunch of other fun stuff. Uh, before we get to that, though, let me encourage you, if you haven't already, to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you like watching the footage, uh, please subscribe to the YouTube page and please leave positive reviews wherever you can. I should probably specify that my handle on YouTube is at the Aaron Rupar show. I've got a really exciting episode in store for next week as well. I'm talking with Kat Abu of Media Matters about becoming a viral sensation on TikTok with her videos summarizing crazy Fox News stories that you may have missed on a given week. So I'm really looking forward to talking with her about that. That episode, like most episodes of the podcast, will drop on Wednesday afternoon. So look for it then. But without further ado, first, let's get to the conversation that I had with Thorne. Welcome to the Aaron Rupar Show. I'm very happy today to be joined by Thor Benson. Thor is a New Orleans-based freelance journalist who has actually written a lot of good stuff for my newsletter, Public Notice. Um, if you've enjoyed the Q&As that I publish at least two or three times a month, uh, chances are you've read at least one of them, if not more than one, that has been put together by Thor. Uh, so Thor, that's got to be kind of a fun aspect of your job, I would think, is that you get to talk to a lot of interesting people. Um, are you usually lining those interviews up via Twitter DMs or emailing or how does that work? Because sometimes it can be hard to get people on the phone, um, especially for Q&As, which, which can be a little bit more involved than like just seeking out a quote or something like that. But uh, yeah, that's got to be kind of fun to be in touch with a lot of smart people. Yeah, it is fun. Usually it's an email, but sometimes if we follow each other on Twitter, then I'll just DM. And then if they don't respond to that, then I'll find their email somewhere and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. track them down. <laughs> and uh, yeah, if you don't follow Thor on Twitter, um, it's at Thor Benson, right? Am I correct uh, on at that? At Thor underscore Benson. Underscore Benson. Okay. For for as long as Twitter continues to exist, <laughs> and then I guess you'll have to track him down elsewhere. But um, I'd be remiss if we didn't start the discussion today with talking a little bit about Trump's indictment. Um, I'm wondering, what was the scene like in New Orleans for this? Were there like drink specials on Bourbon Street, uh, Bourbon Street for Indictment Day, or are people kind of like, you know, there's a lot of people obviously down there on vacations and things like that. So maybe it wasn't like a big local news event. Um, you know, I kind of think back when I was in D.C. and um, during the impeachment or whenever there were big political events, you'd see bars that would have happy hours or, you know, watch parties, things like that. Any of that stuff happened in New Orleans for Indictment Day or was it just kind of another day in the hood? I was surprised there weren't like parties in the street. I remember when Biden <laughs> won, there was everyone was like drinking in the street and 
playing a lot of music, but uh, I didn't see any of that this time around. Uh, people were talking about it at a bar I went to for a little bit, um, but yeah, nothing crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's kind of a unique thing with New Orleans is that um, the city itself, of course, is quite blue, but you know, you're situated in Louisiana, which is kind of hopelessly red at this point, right? I mean, you've got John Kennedy as one of the senators, you've got Cassidy as the other senator. Um, so I'm assuming that, you know, like when you go to New Orleans, it's a pretty safe bet that people you are chatting up at bars and things like that are going to be liberal. But like, what, what's the political dynamic living down there? You know, I'm guessing if you if you stray like a half an hour out of the city, you're probably in deep red uh, America out there. But um, is, am I kind of correct in in assuming that New Orleans, I mean, obviously I've been down there, I met you down there about a year and a half ago, but I was just there for a wedding um, very briefly. Am I correct in assuming that New Orleans is kind of like an island of liberalism amid a sea of red in Louisiana? Yeah, it's kind of strange. It's extremely progressive. But uh, yeah, like you said, if you go out of town, like maybe if you're at a restaurant in a little town or, you know, you're stopping at the gas station, you'll see people in camo, big trucks, sometimes guns. <laughs> And so it's very different, like, the second you leave the city. Yeah, and how does that work for the Democratic Party down there? I mean, are they really contesting still a lot of these statewides, or are they kind of more focused just on consolidating power in parts of the state where they can win elections? I'm, you know, I'm curious, especially when I think of the senators there. Um, you know, Kennedy is kind of one of the more Trumpy and kind of, you know, he's a fixture on Fox, Um not very, you know, not a guy who's compromising a lot with Democrats. Cassidy, of course, made a little bit of a name for himself by being one of the senators who voted for Trump's conviction following the second impeachment, which was kind of surprising because he was a pretty staunch Trump supporter for most of Trump's tenure. But, you know, what what is kind of the scene with the Democratic Party like down there? Is it is it a pretty, you know, like, are they really contesting all these races or are they kind of conceding that they have very little shot winning statewide at this point? To me, it feels like New Orleans is also kind of a political island. Like, you know, we have our Democratic representatives that represent the city and Democratic mayor. But uh, besides that, you don't see a lot of uh, Democrats, you know, yeah. office. And are you covering many local Louisiana stories as a freelancer? I know, you know, the stuff that I read of yours is mainly for big national publications or my newsletter, you know, covering national stuff. Um, have you have you covered any local stories? I guess like climate change related stuff, I'll touch on the fact I'm in New Orleans sometimes because we get the hurricanes, but uh, sure. so not really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, one of the things that um, I thought was interesting as you and I were DMing last week and I thought would be cool to talk about that obviously connects up with this indictment conversation as well as that you mentioned to me that you actually have a bit of a or had at least a bit of a relationship with Stormy Daniels, who, um, you know, was kind of surreal that her name uh, resurfaced as this big national figure a couple weeks ago because, you know, it's like one of those deals with the Trump soap opera that we've all been living in now for seven or eight years. You know, she was a character out of like 2018, you know, like a previous season of the show, basically. Um, I had kind of, I mean, obviously I remembered her, but I hadn't really thought much about her in years. And then when we started hearing rumblings that the Manhattan DA was possibly going to indict Trump, in connection with these hush payments, I had to actually kind of go back and revisit a lot of the coverage from 2018 to remember some of the sordid details of uh, her alleged affair with Trump and the hush payments and all of the, you know, the context surrounding that. But, you know, 
that was the first, you know, and we'll get to this later. You obviously had a bit of a relationship as well, or at least um, had interacted with Elon Musk. And so we'll get to that eventually too. But I did not know that you had that sort of a relationship with Stormy Daniels. So tell me about your background with her a little bit. Yeah. So um, one of my friends who's a bartender had known her for a bit. I'm not sure how they met, but um, I ended up attending a party at the bar he worked at where she was hosting it. And we talked a little bit and then, I think we met one other time after that, and then I ended up doing an interview with her for the Daily Beast, just talking about various topics. Um, and then we saw each other a few times after that. She was just kind of around town. I think she had a house here, might still have it. Um, mm. and I think she has another house or two elsewhere. So, so and, kind of a funny little relationship. <laughs> and, and when you chatted with her, I'm assuming, or when you got to know her a little bit, I'm assuming this was already after she had kind of become this political figure of sorts because of the trump stuff is that right yeah okay and did she give you any i mean i don't want you to speak out of school here but <laughs> was there any interesting dirt or what, what did she have to say about all of that um well i guess one interesting thing she said was she felt like she had to use that moment to like do some good she was like i've got the world looking at me like i'm gonna start a nonprofit and i'm gonna like try to do these things like i'm gonna like you know try to like do good with people paying attention to her at that moment. Has she gone on to to do a nonprofit or anything? I mean, I guess that's part of the story that I, I sort of lost track of is what she had been up to. I know that um, she was doing some sort of a tour at one point, you know, that seemed mm-hmm. to kind of be trying to cash in a little bit on, um, you know, just the notoriety of the, her involvement in this whole, you know, sort of Trump scandal. But, um, you know, I, I guess I, I'm also not, you know, depending on when you talked with her, um, I'm curious, you know, what, I kind of lost track of her after 2018. So you know, maybe you can fill in some of the gaps there of what she's been up to in the last five years or so. Yeah, I didn't follow up like on her starting a nonprofit or anything like that. But um, yeah, she had a whole list of things she wanted to do. <laughs> she was just, she's, her brain works fast and she's got a lot of ideas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, I have not seen much from her, you know, in terms of um, being out there tweeting during all this, although I guess she did have she had one burn on Trump that um, basically suggesting that he's not uh, extremely well endowed, I think, was the yeah. uh, the point of the the tweets. But um, I guess that she calls is him tiny. <laughs> yes, which I guess is kind of fair play, because, of course, Trump calls her horse face, um, right. which, um, you know, I actually thought Trey Gowdy, I include this in my newsletter today. Um, had a really good point on Fox yesterday, which I think it's the first time I've ever said that Trey Gowdy had a good point, <laughs> but was pointing out that, um, you know, even 10 years ago, the thought that a Republican would be involved in some sort of sex scandal with a porn star and actually would boost their polling instead of hurting it. You know, he, he basically said something effective. If you would have told him that 10 years ago, um, he would have been in utter disbelief. And yet here we are. Um, although I'm not really sure how true that is i mean it seems like trump has had a little bit of a bump in the polling in terms of the national head-to-head with DeSantis as a result of the indictment and kind of the news swirling around this in the past couple weeks but you know there was a poll actually that i was looking at just this morning out of florida that shows DeSantis slightly ahead of trump there i've seen some polls out of iowa new hampshire that have DeSantis slightly ahead of trump so um you know i'm not sure the extent to which there's kind of been this narrative that trump is becoming more and more invincible in the republican primary if that's really true, or if that's just a result of looking at the, you know, of looking at national polling that isn't necessarily reflective of how the primary is going to go. I know you've written a lot about um, DeSantis and Trump, including for a recent piece you did in Wired on kind of the unique aspects of American authoritarianism when compared to 
authoritarian movements that have taken power in other countries. And so um, I guess broadly, what, what are you thinking about the Republican primary at this point? I mean, are you worried um, that we are on the road to authoritarianism of either one of those guys, Trump or DeSantis ends up being the 47th president? Like just how concerned are you? Um, you interviewed for that piece and wired a number of political science professors and um, experts on authoritarianism. Um, when you got through kind of reporting that story and writing it, um, I know that the piece kind of had points that cut both ways where I know towards the bottom of the piece, an expert that you talked to pointed out that one of the things um, in the Trump years that was actually kind of heartening in terms of democracy holding strong here is that the courts were pretty resilient and weren't turned into like puppets of Trumpism that, you know, just rubber stamped um, whatever Trump wanted them to do. Um, you know, and maybe you could push back. There were some rulings that I think, you know, were very helpful to Trump that didn't seem to have a ton of legal grounding. But I, I guess that's, you know, the question is just when you got done writing and, and reporting that story, what how did you emerge from that feeling about the state and the strength of U.S. democracy heading into this presidential cycle? I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how Trump's going to do. We'll see. I feel like we still got a lot of time, but I'm just very worried about kind of the direction we're seeing the Republican Party go and how it doesn't seem to change path no matter what happens, like even after losing the midterms. Um, I, like I said in the piece, I feel like even if Trump isn't the guy who gets the nomination this time or next time or whatever, um, I feel like we've started accepting a lot of things that could lead us closer to authoritarianism, like political violence and just a lot of this rhetoric that otherwise would have been unthinkable. Um, so yeah, I'm just worried about the direction of the Republican Party. And as I mentioned in the piece, um, they have a lot of institutional advantages that make it so it's probably not going to, they're probably not going to change as quickly as they otherwise might um, when it comes to like the Electoral College and the Senate and the Supreme Court. Yeah. And that was one of the remarkable things yesterday was the attacks on the judge in New York. I believe his name is Merchin. And I may be mispronouncing that. It's basically merchant without the T at the end. Um, I had to write his name a number of times, but it's one of those things when you're a print journalist, um, you write names that sometimes you don't know how they're pronounced. So I don't want to I don't want to butcher the pronunciation. But, you know, the attacks on that judge and his family, um, you probably noticed yesterday because it was at least a big topic on Twitter that, you know, Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene all posted photos of the judge's daughter on truth social um you know and there's some plausible deniability there where um you know th they would say if they were pressed on this and i actually saw you know when trump's lawyers was on tv today and was asked about this that oh they're just surfacing news articles um they're not trying to direct harassment or threats towards the judge's family but i think it's pretty clear um that that's what happens with trump fans when you do that sort of thing and the fact that that's become almost just kind of like background noise in our politics. I mean, it wasn't really a big story, although there was a lot of news um, with the indictment that kind of um, overshadowed that. So I'm not shocked that it wasn't like front page news. But, you know, that's kind of become normalized among, you know, within Trump's Republican Party that you can sort of try and direct harassment against a, a family member of a judge. And actually, Andrew Weissman, who was a lawyer in Robert Mueller's office uh, during the Mueller investigation, made the point on MSNBC, and I included this clip in my newsletter today, that even mob bosses don't do stuff like that. There's mm -hmm. kind of a code of honor in the mob that you don't generally go after family members of a judge or a law enforcement official 
And so he was actually comparing the conduct of Trump world unfavorably with the mafia in that particular respect. And then, of course, there was also the development where the judge during the arraignment yesterday warned Trump against incendiary rhetoric. You know, Trump, Trump of course, suggested that there would be death and destruction if he was arraigned. Uh, we haven't seen that yet. But, you know, Trump went directly from this arraignment down to Mar-a-Lago, where he again brought up the judge and mentioned that he's a Trump hater and his family um, hates Trump and his wife hates Trump. And so, um, you know, we we have kind of crossed a certain sort of Rubicon, it feels like, in our politics where that sort of stuff is normal. And um, I'm assuming that's part of what you mean when you talk about, um, you know, how norms are kind of being broken down that can pave the way for authoritarianism. Yeah, definitely. And didn't we uh, see Roger Stone do the same kind of thing? Didn't he put the judge in crosshairs or something on social media? Yes. Goodness. Yes, he did. Uh Many years ago. I mean, that's, you know, that's another one. I shouldn't I shouldn't really laugh about stuff like that. But that was during his um, when he was in legal trouble. And I think that ultimately ended with Trump commuting his sentence. Mm. But yeah, I believe, you know, the judge that was involved in one of his cases, um, Stone, and I believe as a result of that, he was subject to a gag order which is yeah. the the issue here with Trump as well, you know, that if Trump keeps this up, he could eventually be hit with a gag order that would prevent him from talking about the New York case um, while it's ongoing. So I guess, you know, that remains to be seen. But that was kind of the point that I tried to make in the newsletter is that even if Trump is subject to a gag order, I think it's pretty naive to think that that would stop him. Um, I think the MO of Trumpism very much is, especially with him, that, you know, he just does whatever he wants and kind of, you know, he kind of banks on the fact that nobody is going to hold him accountable. And that has been a pretty safe bet now for about eight years. So you can't really blame the guy for, you know, sort of disregarding stern warnings from judges and doing whatever he wants. And, um, you know, again, though, he was warned during this arraignment yesterday to knock it off. And he already has, um, you know, he already has indicated and shown that he is not going to abide by that. So that will be interesting to see as this case um, continues along if he is hit with a gag order. Um, yeah. But yeah, the third, the other thing I wanted to talk with you about, um, and you and I have talked about this a little bit, but you know, it might be um, of interest to listeners is your background with Elon Musk. And um, of course, Twitter is um, a topic that's pretty hard to get away from these days, especially if you're on Twitter, like you and I are a lot of the time. Um, so yeah, tell me a little bit about that. I know this was in your context as a, or, you know, in your, in your role as a reporter that you were first in touch with him, but, um, how did you first get in touch with him and what were your interactions with him? Like, I want to say it started around 2017. I'd have to look it up, but, um, yeah, I just, I ended up finding his email. I'm good at finding people's emails and (laughs) I just reached out for a comment for a story and, uh, he gave me a little comment and then, um, I think maybe months later, he was on Twitter talking about how he wanted to start this company that he ended up saying was going to be called Pravda, where they'd be um, like criticizing different news outlet outlets and stuff. And I was like, what's going on with this? So we started talking about that. And it just kind of became like an email chain of just talking and talking. Um, and then... Eventually it kind of fizzled out and I'd occasionally reach out to him for comment for a story and he wouldn't really reply, but I don't know. I got to talk to him for a while and it was interesting. Um, at the time I didn't dislike him in the way I do now, uh, but yeah, he well, wasn't so publicly terrible at the time. <laughs> roughly what year was this that you guys were emailing? I think it was like between 2017 and 2018. 
Okay. So the, yeah, this is kind of before obviously he became heavily involved in politics because, you know, you, you would know this better than me because I am not someone who has tracked him closely over the years, but back at that point in time, he was pretty apolitical, right? Like it wasn't, now we kind of think of him as being this like right winger, um, kind of libertarian guy. But um, back then I don't remember hearing a lot about him in terms of his politics. Yeah, he was pretty intentionally vague about that stuff. He didn't like to seem like he was politically involved at the time. And that's also kind of shocking to me that you could just track down his email and he would respond. But I guess if you had kind of, you know, um, identified yourself as a reporter, um, maybe he saw fit. You know, I guess I would just assume someone of his stature would have like a press office that you would have to go through. But I guess mm-hmm. being being as online as he is, um, you know, maybe he is actually checking his his personal emails like that. What was funny is a lot of times he'd respond to an email at like, we were both in California at the time, and he'd respond to an email at like 1230 at night. Like, <laughs> he was just up responding to emails. Sure. It was strange. And then, yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but it ended up kind of evolving to a point um, where he was sort of seeking out your advice on certain things, right? Uh, when we were talking about the Pravda stuff, he was kind of like listening to what I had to say about it and, you know, taking note of that. Mm-hmm. And how did you guys end up leaving off with that relationship? Because I'm assuming at this point you're not in touch with him. Well, at one point he was tweeting some really weird stuff and I just expressed concern. Like I was like, is everything going all right? And I think that annoyed him. Um, I don't mm-hmm. think he likes to feel like he's anything but perfect. <laughs> so, yeah. How how does the the Elon that we all kind of see on Twitter at this point, and obviously I've had some brushes with him scrapes with him i guess you know having my account suspended back in december and um he obviously i'm on his radar to some extent he's replied to a few tweets of mine although none since um the suspension incident but you know is this kind of the same guy that you got to know a little bit in terms of what we're seeing on twitter do you think something has really changed in in the five years or so since you were in touch i feel like he's long had noticeable flaws that are just now magnified and i think he's just been surrounded by yes men for too long and has been too online and he's gotten so rich i think like everything that was bad about him before is just 10 times worse now yeah do do you have it so like i i kind of run into this you know feels like a little bit of a dilemma where um and i'm sure this is true for you as well being a working journalist where twitter feels kind of indispensable but i'm like also annoyed to have to spend time on it these days. I mean, you know, you probably noticed just yesterday as I was getting ready to go to bed, there was a story circulating and um, well, not really a story. It was just something that happened that, you know, NPR's main account was hit with a label labeling it as state supported media, which Mm -hmm. um, is obviously meant to be some sort of dig at NPR. So I'm not exactly sure what they reported that annoyed Elon. It must've been something having to do with him, I'm assuming, but you know, when you actually and, and a number of reporters were pointing this out, that when you read the policy that Twitter has for identifying outlets as state supported media, in no way would this support a designation of NPR as such, because the standard is if outlets still have an independent newsroom and editorial independence, then they are not labeled in a way that like RT, which does not, you know, RT is never going to be critical of the Russian government, you know, Chinese outlets are never going to be critical of the Chinese government. Obviously, NPR is at times critical. Um, I thought that they should have been more critical of Trump. um, Mm -hmm. And that was actually something I remember writing about at Vox, because they were kind of a worse defender in terms of sanitizing Trump's rallies and 
you know, kind of characterizing really insane things that he would say as like heated rhetoric, um, you know, kind of watering it down. But, you know, it's just it's every day there's new, you know, whether it's New York Times having their badge removed, um, you know, it just feels like it's kind of in a lawless condition now where whatever Elon wants, he does. Um, so maybe, you know, what are you personally doing to contin- to contingency plan? Are you active on some of these other platforms like Mastodon or Post? Or are you basically just kind of resigned at this point to going down with the ship with Twitter? I started a bunch of accounts at different places, I think, when we all did. But uh, <laughs> I haven't been using them. So uh, I guess I'm just waiting until Twitter finally dies um, to actually use those things. But uh, I'm hoping it doesn't die. I like it to some extent. <laughs> right. And it might not die. You know, I'm not sure if it's actually going to die. Um, but it's just, you know, I, I still kind of um, every time I sort of wade into you know, like I, I posted something the other day on New York Times having their badge removed. And, you know, then I'm kind of like holding my breath for a day that I'm going to log in like I did in December. And it's going to say your account suspended again because <laughs> we just, you know, we just don't know at this point um, what tomorrow is going to hold on Twitter. And yet it still kind of feels like this indispensable reporting tool so i mean what do you think like if twitter went away would that really negatively impact your career or how would you know because you're obviously pretty prolific on twitter you've got you know a big following and you use it i'm sure to some extent as a reporting tool as i do whether you know whether that's gathering information or just dming with people um but what would your you know let's say you woke up tomorrow and you know twitter's gone i mean how do you think that would impact your career I think the thing that keeps me at Twitter and probably keeps a lot of people at Twitter is just that I spent years building up a following and Mm -hmm. like, I don't want to start at square one again. Like (laughs) if I could just transfer all my followers somewhere else, then I probably would. But yeah, yeah, it just feels like it's going to take forever to get any amount of following and a new website. And who knows if we're all going to go to the same website. It's it's pretty complicated. Well, yeah. And that was kind of my thing when I got suspended from Twitter, um, you know, it was actually really cool. One of one of the founders of Post reached out to me and was kind of like, hey, you know, I'd be happy to help you get up and running. You know, this was back in December when they still had kind of like a wait list. And so, um, you know, I don't want to be too critical of Post because obviously the guy was very nice to me and helped me get going on there. And then because I was kind of in the news at that point, I like immediately got up to about 80,000 followers, which on Post is huge. Um, but I don't really I don't know. If, are you on Post? I'm on there, but I have no idea how many followers I have. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I mean, I'm not curious about the, but I'm just, I'm more curious about your thoughts on kind of just post as a platform, because for me, it it reminds me too much of Facebook where, um, you know, you can post like, whether it be articles or, you know, it's actually more incentivized towards like actually posting long form, you know, whether it's more like blog, you know, written thoughts that are more long form, and then you can actually paywall parts of it and sort of generate some income uh that way but it doesn't really have like at replies you know so it's more of a comment section below whatever it is that you post on there Mm -hmm. and in that way it kind of reminds me a lot of facebook and then myself you know doing a lot of video work it doesn't have supported video so like you can post something on youtube and then repost it onto posts but you can't directly post video and so i mean the point simply being i find it to be kind of wanting you know i don't really view it as like a twitter alternative it's more of like a facebook alternative i would say but you know so what what are your thoughts i mean you know mastodon i think has a little bit of promise that you know it has a lot of the elements of twitter that i like it just doesn't really have the scale um but are there any of these other platforms that you view at this point as being especially promising or maybe not and i guess if not, then maybe that's part of the reason that Twitter, despite the train wreck that is the ownership at this point, is proving to be kind of resilient. 
Yeah. Um, post does feel like a Facebook alternative, maybe like Facebook, but not evil. Um, <laughs> uh, Mastodon is pretty cool, but I feel like people are still like confused by the server stuff. I don't know. I haven't seen anything that I've been like, yes, this is where we go. Yeah, that's kind of my feeling as well. So, you know, still kind of writing it out on Twitter, uh, hoping that something changes where Elon has to sell or give it up or, you know, maybe the investors um, kind of turn on him that helped him buy it. Um, I don't really see that happening, but um, that'd be great if it did, just because um, it'd be nice to have a little more stability and have a platform that you can kind of count on uh, going forward. Uh, with, with with the time that we have left, I'm curious, are you working on anything right now that you are especially excited about? I know that for public notice, you're kind of in the early stages of putting something together on how other countries handle former leaders being indicted, which I'm really excited to eventually read because um, that's a really interesting and rich topic right now. But, uh, you know, just wherever you want to take that, is there anything that you're working on that you are kind of excited to see the to, excited for it to see the light of day? Uh, yeah, well, I just started a piece for Wired, um, and it's going to be about how, like, AI images and deepfake videos um, could affect the 2024 election. So oh, uh, just going to be getting started on that. But, uh, yeah, I'm excited to see where it goes. So w- what are your thoughts on how they could affect the election? You know, Photoshop broke our trust in images, and I think AI is going to take that even further. And I think... Yeah. Now we're not going to be able to trust videos because they can just, you know, make them from scratch. Uh, so <laughs> it's I mean, be- I feel like that's it's true and it's kind of it's true and it's not, though, because um, I, maybe this is just because I'm so immersed in video all the time. I, so I'm probably not the target for this kind of stuff. But, you know, whenever I see these AI videos, I mean, there was one of DeSantis that was circulating just a few days ago giving a speech and um I believe that the point was that it was like the speech that DeSantis should give kind of going in on Trump and really being like, you know, um, this guy's a criminal. We shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't vote for him, vote for me kind of thing. You know, all the things that he won't say that um, actually probably would tank him in a primary. I don't think that would be especially helpful for him. But, you know, like what a normal candidate who was trying to beat Trump would say instead of just kind of continuing to toady to him. But the point being that this video did not seem overly authentic to me. I mean, it was pretty obvious that it was fake. Um Granted, there was one with of Elizabeth Warren on MSNBC that was fake. That was a little bit more persuasive. But you know, is, is that something that you think people should be worried about? That you know, there are going to be videos that are going to be so lifelike that it might, you know, allow kind of misinformation to flourish or, you know, create false perceptions of what candidates are saying or doing. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely getting better all the time, and the best stuff is slowly becoming more available like you know there are like different versions of how to make these things and yeah the better technology is slowly like creeping into um a larger audience so i think at, with time it will become a situation where we're going to have a hard time figuring out what's real and what's not hmm. yeah and, and on the the piece that you're working on for the newsletter on the how other countries deal with indictments i know you said that you haven't really gotten around to transcribing yet but were there any kind of like top line sort of big takeaways from that that you think are applicable to what we're facing here um you know and maybe this is something that you have some insight on i mean i sometimes think about um 
you know, Trump being indicted with these charges that he's specifically facing in New York. And, you know, it should be mentioned that obviously there could be other indictments. There's the the federal investigation into the mishandling of classified documents. There's a Georgia investigation into trying to overturn the election there. So, I mean, we shouldn't assume that this is going to be the only indictment or that, you know, in two weeks, we won't be talking about some other indictment that looks a lot worse than the New York one does, um, because I think the New York one has facts that have been kind of out there for many years now. Um, You know, I think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that, you know, using hush payments to keep information from voters is a really big deal. And I think there's an argument to be made that had these women gone forward and had their stories aired publicly during the 2016 election, it could have changed things. Um, That might be kind of hard to imagine, given that, you know, Trump was accused of misconduct by like 20 women in October of 2016 and still went on to win the election. Um, but, you know, I'm just curious, were there any like big takeaways from your the interview that you did for that that you think um, are worth keeping in mind as we sort of process the news of Trump's indictment and grapple with it here, um, you know, in the months to come? Um, yeah, something the guy I interviewed said was like, we shouldn't downplay this just because maybe it's not as serious as the other things he could be charged for. Um you know, like campaign finance related stuff does matter. It's part of like sustaining a democracy. Um, and um, it's a crime that relates to his time before he was in office. Um, so it doesn't threaten like, you know, future presidents like who are just doing what they had to do while they were president. This is about just his personal life and him trying to influence his, you know, political campaigns, chances, um, things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that's problematic for Trump's defense, because, you know, there are obviously certain privileges that come with being president that can kind of immunize you from legal issues. But of course, the hush payments took place previous to him being elected. And so he doesn't really have that same shield that he might right. you know, if this if this conduct had occurred in you know 2017 2018 rather than in 2016 so yeah we'll be on the lookout for that piece in public notice um i look forward to reading it because it's very timely right now and everyone can check out thor's work as well in wired or just follow him on twitter to kind of stay in touch with not only his work but um all of your pithy musings on Mm -hmm. u.s politics uh thank you very much for joining the podcast i really appreciate your time yeah thanks for having me That does it for today's episode of the Aaron Rupar Show. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and also follow me on YouTube to watch the footage of the show each week. You can find me there at the Aaron Rupar Show. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so be sure to check out your feeds each week for a new installment of the show. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.